You're listening to Stage Combat, a mental health story of what really happened behind the scenes at the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam, Connecticut, during its 2019 production of Billy Elliot, the musical. Stage Combat is a true story of the narrator's personal experience during his mental health journey from 2019 to 2023. This podcast contains actor portrayals of actual events. The names of the members of the cast of Billy Elliot have been changed. Stage Combat contains strong language and addresses mental illness. Check the show notes for more details. Haywood Productions LLC offered Goodspeed Musicals, Inc., and the Goodspeed Opera House Foundation, Inc., the opportunity to include a statement in each episode of Stage Combat, including an option to deny the events as depicted. They declined. Haywood Productions also offered Goodspeed's artistic director and managing director the opportunity to appear on this podcast to discuss the narrator's account of his experience at the Goodspeed Opera House. They both declined. In Alfred Hitchcock's 1958 film, Vertigo, Jimmy Stewart plays Scotty, a man obsessed with a mysterious woman, Madeline, played by Kim Novak. They're at the Mission San Juan Batista in California. As Scotty chases Madeline up the bell tower, Scotty's vertigo kicks in. He gets up a couple of flights and looks down, but he's overwhelmed by dizziness. He tries to push through. He grabs onto anything, trying to hoist himself up those stairs. In 2019, I find myself climbing up the dark backstage stairwell of the Goodspeed Opera House. And I'm having a moment of depersonalization. I'm outside my body. And when I look down at my body, I'm seeing myself as Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo. I'm actually experiencing dizziness rather than vertigo. But the shortness of breath is there. The panic. The disorientation. And in a moment that can only come when you are completely detached from your body, that strange image of Jimmy Stewart somehow merges into the image of my late father. My father was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when he was 21. By the time he reached his late 50s, he experienced a rare neurological disorder linked to his diabetes. It caused painful spasms and muscle rigidity. He would fall. And this man, who in the prime of his life was handsome, funny, confident, was plagued with fear. I saw him become a scared and frightened version of the man he used to be. Up and down that stairwell at the Goodspeed Opera House, I see myself becoming my father. A scared and frightened version 
of the man I used to be. And in this strange world of the opera house, I feel my own mortality. But I'm not at the opera house. My mind is. My body is lying on an urgent care examination table in New York City. I've come in to see a doctor with breathing issues following my second panic attack at the good speed two days earlier. My shirt is unbuttoned and my pants legs are pulled up. I have electrodes attached all over my body as the physician performs an EKG. Mr. Hayden, your heart is okay. You're suffering from an adjustment disorder. And what is that? Your body is having an emotional reaction to a stressful event or stressful events in your life. That would be the good speed. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 2 of Stage Combat, Part 1. The Memo. You know the drill. I experience trauma at the good speed. I leave East Haddam to go home for the two days off. And then I drive back to Connecticut, past the dollar store, the Dunkin' Donuts, and across the swing bridge. The opera house is leering at me. This time it's saying, why don't you just pack it in, buddy? They don't want you here. But I'm not a quitter. I've never quit a union contract, and in my mind, quitting is not an option. It would be a career killer. When I return to work on Wednesday, October 7th, I'm aware that my condition is worsening. The dizziness, the breathing, the fear of falling, and the fear of my next attack. And I feel alone because no one at the good speed will acknowledge what is happening with me. I walk into my dressing room and Aaron, the fight captain, and Kevin are there. They actually look at me today. I latch onto them like a puppy desperate for interaction. I say, well, now I can say I had my first EKG, guys. Had one yesterday. But they say nothing. Almost as if someone had instructed them not to engage with me. I just try to find some comfort in the relationships that I have with the two Billies. They're amazing boys. Bright. Grounded. Sweet. Cody, one of the boys playing Billy, has two brilliant dads. I've really enjoyed getting to know them. Cody loves to ask about our rescue dog, Lila. He refers to her as our daughter. Hey, Sean, how's your daughter doing? In fight call today, Cody looks a little worried. He tells me, I heard our show got some bad reviews. I've chosen not to read my reviews. I told Ian, don't tell me anything about them. 
unless they're good. And Ian has told me that my reviews are good, but he did mention the show itself got a couple of bad ones. I say to Cody, you know what? Reviews don't matter. I see Chad standing off to the edge of the stage. He's watching us, listening. I say to Cody, anyone with a computer can write a review. Just focus on being satisfied with what you are doing on stage. Yeah, that sounds good. I give Cody a big hug. Chad is still watching us. And for a moment, I almost feel bad for Chad. He doesn't have the relationships that I have with these boys. And these two young men, they are full of light. It's the best thing I have at the good speed right now. And for the moment, I'll take it. The next day, I returned to the opera house for the evening performance. As I open the stage door, to the cast. I feel my mind start to pull away from my body. Profanity during as I show. climb up that dark stairwell to my dressing room. I report to fight call. And as we start, I tell the stage manager, Bradley G. Spockman, and Aaron, the fight captain, that I'm feeling lightheaded. At one point, I briefly stop the fight call and turn to my right to take some deep breaths. But as usual, silence. And I see that both Bradley G. Spockman and Aaron have now assumed the same dead look behind their eyes. We start the act two kitchen fight. There's a moment in the stage combat sequence where I'm moving from a standing position to a crouching position en route to the floor. Chad is supposed to brace my back with an open palm. But for some reason, he slaps my back. The impact stings through my shirt. Given that I'm in a crouching position and feeling dizzy, that extra force is potentially dangerous. One break in the link of the chain of any stage combat sequence could produce an injury. And I was just on a doctor's table two days ago. But I don't want to make a huge deal out of this. I just want to feel safe. So I quietly tell Aaron, privately, off to the side, that Chad slapped my back too hard and just please have him ease up. No interaction with Chad. What I don't know, and what I won't know for two years, is that because of this simple safety request, all hell breaks loose at the good speed. After I leave the stage, Aaron informs Chad of my safety request, not to slap me so hard. Chad gets very angry. What? No, I didn't. He insists he didn't do anything wrong. He's gaslighting me. But he doesn't stop there. He lodges a complaint with Bradley G. Spockman's underling, Naomi. And the complaint? Now Sean says I purposely punched him in the back. But he doesn't stop there. 
he goes to his dressing room and sends an email to Rachel Tischler. Rachel, I think it's time for us to meet again. He mysteriously tells her, I have nothing left to give on this, and I will need to take action for myself. Just prior to the curtain, Aaron tells me in my dressing room. Oh, I spoke to Chad, and he says he didn't hit you too hard. And here we go again. Just like the fight call incident when Chad knocked the air out of me. In Chad's world, I cannot make any safety request. In his world, he decides what my body feels. I tell Aaron, well, I'm on the receiving end, so I know what I felt is not his call to make. Aaron just gives me a blank stare. My mental state is really frayed, and Aaron's words just confirm to me that nothing regarding my safety has been resolved at the good speed. And so, as the performance begins, I start to have another panic attack. I become dizzy, my body starts sweating. Backstage, I swig down a bunch of water and take deep breaths. My face contorts and my eyes squint. I throw myself into my first scene, and once I become busy in the scene, the symptoms start to subside. All through the performance, Chad is using stronger force against my body. In my dressing room between scenes, I tell Aaron, something is going on with him tonight. Please keep an eye on him. But he just gives me another blank stare. After the show, there's a meet the cast talkback in the opera house. The cast comes back on stage to sit in chairs to answer questions from the audience. Anyone in the audience has questions for our amazing cast of Billy Elliot. I'm exhausted, but I want to look like a team Uh, player. I have a question. Why I am still trying at this point, Um, I'm not really sure. I look around the chairs and notice Chad is the only principal actor not there. He's gone home. He's angry. But he is satisfied about one thing. He received an email from Rachel Tischler. She wrote back to him at 9.40 p.m. The earliest I can offer you is 2 or 3 p.m. tomorrow. Let's just find some time to talk. After the talk back, I leave the opera house, go back to my housing, and climb into bed. Frustrated. Sad. Back at the opera house. At 11.27 p.m., Naomi, the assistant stage manager, is quietly working. Tucked away in the late-night lair of Bradley G. Spockman's stage management department is a world of after-hours memos issued safe in the secrecy from the actors who have left the opera house for the night. To Bradley G. Spockman. Subject, Billy Elliot, October 10th, fight call. Sean had another instance of overheating right before the show began. At fight call tonight, Sean and Chad had another altercation. 
Jean felt that Chad had purposefully punched him in the back. By both my vantage point and Aaron's, that was not the case. Chad uses open palms to brace Sean for leverage. Naomi sends her one-sided account, obtained from Chad, to Bradley G. Spockman, an account containing a fabricated altercation, a fabricated accusation of being punched in the back, an account omitting that Chad's open palm slapped my back. But here in the world of the good speed, no one asks me anything. Twenty minutes later, at 11.47 p.m., Bradley G. Spockman forwards this email to Donalyn Hilton and Rachel Tischler with the message, This has rapidly become a capital P problem. What, if anything, can be the endgame? And the next day, less than two weeks after my collapse on the Goodspeed Opera House stage, Donna Lynn and Rachel begin discussing terminating my contract with Billy Elliot. Stay tuned for part two of episode two of Stage Combat. If you or someone you love is struggling with their mental health, help is available. The National Alliance on Mental Illness is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. Call the helpline at 1-800-950-6264 or text to 62640. That's 1-800-950-6264 or by text to 62640. And now, part two of episode two of Stage Combat. File. S. Hayden. It's the next morning. Friday, October 11th, 2019, at around 11 a.m. And I've been asked by the Goodspeed to give a radio interview for Billy Elliot. It's not something you get paid for. You just do it to help promote the show. Joining me on the phone is Sean Hayden. He's currently playing the role of Dad in Goodspeed Musical's production of Billy Elliot the Musical. Congratulations on being in the show. How has it been going? How's it going? It's a fucking nightmare. That's how it's going. It's awful. I don't feel safe. There's an actor who won't stop harassing me. The theater won't do anything about it. And I just had a panic attack and collapsed on stage. It's the worst fucking job I've ever had in my life. But that's not what I say. Definitely what I'm thinking, but I don't say it. And I say stuff like, working at the good speed is what an actor aspires to, and please come see the show. After the interview, I prop open my door on this Friday afternoon to listen to the rain. 
I'm exhausted. I'm in a haze. I'm losing my fight. My spirit, I can feel it. So I start to work on some legal matters for some clients. And try to find some solace and the sound of that rain. And in the beauty of the rain, through the fog that is now my life, I hear the faintest voice inside of me. It's not very loud, but it's trying to tell me, don't forget you know who you are. Back at the Opera House, Bradley G. Spockman has asked his fight captain Aaron for something. A memo regarding the conflict between Chad and me. Not once has Aaron acknowledged my dizziness, but today he does. Privately. To Bradley G. Spockman in this memo. I worry about Sean's stated tendency towards dizziness over the last week. That's certainly not ideal during this type of staged violence, where wrestling counts mainly on balance skills. There's a disconnect in the style of stage fighter Sean is and Chad is. Sean states that he wants set moves, while Chad's approach is much more physical and complex. Exactly five minutes after receiving the memo, Bradley G. Spockman forwards Aaron's summary to Donna Lynn Hilton and Rachel Tischler. Like all of Goodspeed's emails that will go out today, I won't know anything about them for more than two years. I also don't know that an hour and a half later, at 3 p.m., Chad walks into Rachel Tischler's office. It's an office he knows well, because this is his third meeting with her. And Chad remembers what Rachel Tischler told him after his first meeting. I hope you will continue to let me and Brad know if anything additional should occur, no matter how small. Since then, Chad's been surveilling me, eavesdropping on conversations, looking for something, anything that might stick. Rachel picks up her pen ready to take dictation, even though two weeks ago she caught the man sitting in front of her lying about racial slurs, lying about restraining orders, and now he's back. Rachel, I've got more stuff to tell you. Rachel writes at the top of the page, Chad meeting, 10-11, 3 p.m. Chad starts at the top of his list. He tells her he heard gossip about me from casting director Paul Hart, the guy who was holding court at the press night party. I know this person. She was in that show. What was the name of that show? And Rachel Tischler, the head of human resources, writes down, G-O-S-S-I-P. Chad tells Rachel, he overheard me telling someone that my husband suggested I not force a line on stage. Rachel writes, Notes from his husband. Chad tells Rachel he has some kind of complaint about my mother attending the show. 
only my mother didn't attend the show, Ian's mother did. But Rachel writes down some kind of complaint about my mother, who didn't attend the show, attending Billy Elliot. Mom visiting. Chad tells Rachel, I was so upset about my reviews that I complained about them to a 13-year-old boy playing Billy. And even though Goodspeed collects all the reviews to market the show and knows I have not received any bad ones, Rachel Tischler writes, Upset about the reviews. Talking to Cody about it. And Chad makes a complaint about eye contact. He doesn't think he's getting enough eye contact on stage for me. As I play a grieving father who is disassociated from everyone around him. And Rachel Tischler writes that down. At the top of the page, under the words action steps, Rachel doesn't write investigate. She doesn't write speak with Sean. Rachel writes file S. Hayden. As Chad leaves Rachel's office, she swings into action. It's now 4.57 p.m. And no one from the Goodspeed has asked me about last night's safety request. Or anything. Rachel reports to Donna Lynn Hilton. And also her boss, Executive Director Michael Gennaro. The man who had the dream. This show has such great heart. Of bringing Billy Elliot to the Goodspeed. The situation has not improved with respect to Sean Hayden and Chad. We received messages concerning a second fight call incident, although it seems like most of this was in Sean's perception and not an actual dispute. Donna Lynn and I discussed what direction we wanted to go, letting Chad walk out of the production or thinking about replacing Sean. Apparently, Chad has threatened to quit the production, and the Goodspeed is now discussing terminating my contract, which legally, this late into the run, can only be terminated for cause. Rachel tells Donna Lynn and Michael Gennaro that she spoke to director Gabriel Barry, and he said, I'm behind whatever decision you decide is best. Donna Lynn chimes in. I haven't seen any behavior that would cause me to replace Sean, excepting the horrible relationship with Chad. I would just say he's difficult. Rachel tells Gennaro, Replacing Sean will cost good speed money and will damage the show. Letting Chad walk doesn't help fix the Sean problem. Donna Lynn agrees, and she does not want to put my understudy Larry into the role. Brad says he's not someone we want to put into the role long term. I don't want to have to put this show through this replacement. Larry will not be a strong replacement, so word of mouth will not be good. I'm afraid the show will never regain its strength. Michael Gennaro weighs in. I don't feel close enough to this to fire someone until I have the chance to tell them that this is where this is headed. I think Sean should be told I want to meet with him. My message would be brief. Either this stops or we are letting you go. But no one will say what this is, what difficult is, or what the Sean problem is. Back at my housing, and having no clue what's been going on with management, at around 5 p.m., I see I have a voicemail from my agent's office. 
it's not from my actual agent. It's a junior agent who joined the agency last year. I call her back. She tells me Rachel Tischler has called her. Um, I'm not sure why Rachel Tischler called me or what was the purpose of the call. Why would she call you? She, she has my number. I've been sitting here all day within walking distance of her office. Um, I don't know, but she says an actor named Chad complained about some safety request. You made in a fight call last night? Of course he has. Here we go again. And something about he doesn't think he's getting enough eye contact from you on stage. He doesn't think he's getting enough eye contact? For real. I shake my head. Will someone tell me, what is this mysterious hold that this actor seems to have over management or a hold over someone? This is beyond ridiculous. Beyond. And, and, and why is Rachel going out of her way to apparently not speak to me? Oh, shit. And then I realize what is going on. I hang up and call Ian. I think they're trying to build a file against me. I think they're trying to get rid of the guy with the panic attacks. After the calls, I sit on my sofa. And I'm feeling really distraught. Because something is up big time at the Goodspeed. And clearly, Goodspeed has done nothing about Chad. What am I going to do? I decide I need to get my primary agent involved, the one who has represented me for 13 years, to put a stop to this. Yes, that's my plan. But first, I'm going to talk to Rachel Tischler. This is Rachel. Hi, Rachel. This is Sean. Hi, Sean. So now we have an eye contact problem? Are you kidding me? Yeah, have that eye contact, Sean. We've got to have that eye contact. I'm thinking, what's with the weird sing-songy cadence? And why is the general manager giving me an acting note? Why is Rachel Tischler acting as Chad's personal grievance manager? What are you even talking about? No one on the creative team has said anything about eye contact, not even the stage manager. You've seen the show. You know I'm playing an emotionally unavailable coal miner who is disassociating from everyone around him. Yeah. Rachel, come see the show tonight yourself. Eight o'clock curtain. She doesn't take me up on it. Chad is engaging in his same pattern of retaliation with false claims whenever I have a safety request. Here I am a few minutes before my half hour call. I should be preparing for my character so I can do my job. Instead, I'm having to chase you down and deal with this. Under your own handbook, this is harassment. This is bullshit, Rachel. Enough is enough. It needs to stop now. Sean, give me the respect I deserve. I cower. I don't know why I'm cowering, but I am. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry, but this has to stop, Rachel. This has been a tremendous toll on me. I just had another panic attack on Sunday, 
after Chad went into my dressing room. Um, tell me about that? Well, he was in my dressing room for some reason after Brad gave him a note about screaming his lines at me. And I, I couldn't even get Brad to, to keep him out of my personal space. I, I am having trouble breathing backstage. So much so, I went to a doctor three days ago, and the doctor was so concerned about my breathing, she performed an EKG. This has to stop. But Rachel Tischler doesn't say one word. And Rachel doesn't write a single word. Not one note. For the file. The call's over. I pick up my dressing room bag and head over to the opera house. As I approach it, I don't want to know what it has to say tonight. But then I look up. And all I see in that four-story Victorian facade is the embodiment of an employer that does not value my mental health, my safety, my worth. As I open the stage door, I'm suddenly hit with a fear of another panic attack on the Goodspeed stage. But what I really have to fear on the stage, on this particular night, is what Chad has in store for me next. I have nothing left to give on this, and I will need to take action for myself. Haywood Productions offered The Goodspeed the opportunity to include a statement within this episode. The Goodspeed declined. Goodspeed's artistic director and managing director declined an invitation to appear on this podcast to discuss the narrator's account of his experience at the Goodspeed Opera House. Coming up on the next episode of Stage Combat, a mental health story. As I'm about to pull back my elbow in front of a 10-year-old boy's face, Chad suddenly, for the first time, screams in my face. Fuck! Wait. What is happening? That's not in the script. Yelling fuck in my face? You can't do that in a dangerous choreographed fight sequence. So what is Chad doing? Spockman, the man who has given me nothing but blank stares, suddenly snaps. I'm sick of both of you. We're going to rehearse this tomorrow. And if this doesn't stop, I'm getting rid of both of you. Stay tuned for a post-show talkback with Sean and his guest, psychologist Dr. Elisa Hurwitz. I will point out that, you know, in your experience, that you weren't safe. You were experiencing depersonalization. You weren't safe because you were still in that work atmosphere where this harm had happened, was happening, and the environment was giving you the message that they were not going to keep you safe. So your depersonalization experience at that point was telling you get out. That's coming up now. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the post-show talkback of Season 2, Episode 2. This is Sean Hayden, and I am so pleased to have back with us clinical psychologist, Dr. Elisa Hurwitz. Welcome back, Dr. Hurwitz. Thank you, Sean. Dr. Hurwitz, in Part 1 of Episode 2, it's called The Memo, and we talk about depersonalization that I'm having in Episode 
of depersonalization as I climb up the good speed backstage stairwells. I see myself out of my body and I'm actually picturing myself as Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo. We actually talked about depersonalization briefly in the last season, episode eight, Splat. We talked about that I was, when I was on the floor, I saw myself over my body. And I just wanted to do a check-in with you and help our audience understand what are we referring to when we use that term, depersonalization? Yeah, it's a term that refers to the experience of feeling separate from your physical being. And it can even be experienced in metaphysical ways where the person feels like they are not in their body, floating above their body, observing their body. And it is, you know, typically can be a symptom of trauma. If you're aware that that's happening to you, what can a person do? Or is this just something you just have to write out? Two parts, two part answer to that. One is long-term, pretty good red flag that something is not right, that getting some therapeutic support is going to be best in the long-term. In the short-term, grounding techniques can be really helpful, right? You could kind of picture, right, this experience of kind of floating above your body, like you're saying, or observing yourself. Getting connected with your five senses helps you get back into your body. Now, only do that if it's actually safe. People can experience depersonalization during a trauma and The function of that depersonalization is survival. It's, this is so awful that I cannot be in my physical being. That's not the conscious thought. It's what's happening subconsciously. And then the person kind of separates from themselves. If somebody is is just surviving a trauma, just survive a trauma and then get the help that you need. You know, it's kind of do whatever it takes to survive. But if now this has become a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder, all of the things that allowed the person to survive the trauma now become a symptom because they're still happening. The person's body and mind is still feeling unsafe and the symptoms are no longer needed to survive. Now it's a symptom. Now it's not actually functionally helping the person to survive. And so grounding techniques is, like I said, connecting to the five senses, so sight, taste, touch, smell, hearing. So there's so many different ways to do this. Can I ask you about, because I... After I left Billy Elliot, I would see these these memes on Instagram. And so that yeah. that five, four, three, two, one technique is I think what you're referring to, right? So it's five things you can see. That's one of them. Yeah. Four things you can touch. Yeah. Three things you can hear. Yeah. Two things you can smell. One thing you can taste. And so you just sort of work your way through each one of those. And the idea is that it puts you back into your body, correct? It puts you back in your physical body. hundred percent. That is one of the the grounding techniques. And it's great. It's portable. You can take it with you anywhere. I will point out that, you know, in your experience that you weren't safe, you were experiencing depersonalization. You weren't safe because you were still in that work atmosphere where this harm had happened, was happening. And the environment was giving you the message that they were not going to keep you safe. So your depersonalization experience at that point was telling you get out. Yeah. That's, you know, that, you know, so at the end of the day, that's the best thing to do, you know, but it's hard when you're in it, right? Because this was all new to you. So you were just trying to figure out what is going on. Yeah. And that thought doesn't occur to me. I just know that my body's having a reaction, but I don't have the knowledge of what depersonalization is. I don't have the knowledge of what it's indicative of. At that time, I just, I'm just writing it out, but it was really frightening because you feel that, you know, you feel a certain loss of control. Because you are not in your body. Yeah. If, if somebody is experiencing a symptom like depersonalization, that is definitely um, your mind and body telling you something's not right. Dr. Hurwitz, thank you for being with us in this post-show talkback. We'll look forward to talking with you again. Thank you, Sean.
Dr. Elisa Hurwitz is a clinical psychologist in group private practice in New Hampshire, specializing in the autism spectrum and gender identity. She also applies her professional knowledge to consult with theater companies, conduct post-show talkbacks, and interview Broadway actors. You can follow her at drdrama.com and on Instagram at the drdrama. that's T-H-E-D-R drama. Remember, this podcast should not be considered a substitute for medical advice. So if you are experiencing any medical or mental health issues, please seek the advice of a medical or mental health professional. Hey, Stage Combat listeners, Sean Hayden here. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Stage Combat, a mental health story. Be sure to join us for episode three. It's called The Whistleblower. In our post-show talkback, Dr. Michelle Sherman will be back with us. You might remember her from season one, and she's going to chat with me about things that every theater can do right now to support the mental health of performing artists. Stage Combat, A Mental Health Story is a production of Haywood Productions, LLC. Our consulting producer is Ian Southwood of Southwood Productions, LLC. This episode was recorded and edited by the incredible Andrew Lynn, and it was directed and read by me, Sean Hayden. Please follow us on Facebook and TikTok at Stage Combat the Podcast, and on Instagram at Stage Combat the Podcast IG. Rate us, review us, and follow us at your podcast platform. And did you know you can also listen to Stage Combat episodes online? You can do that at stagecombatthepodcast.com. And you can also sign up for the Stage Combat newsletter. We would love to hear from you, your comments, your questions. Maybe you would like to share your own experience. Email us at stagecombatthepodcast at gmail.com. Just a reminder, these episodes are intense, so please take care of yourselves. I hope today and every day brings you an opportunity to claim your story. I'll meet you over at episode three.